We still are living with many effects of COVID-19 and its variants. The incidence of people catching COVID is still very high. One in 16 in Scotland, they say. It's very high. We have recently passed the landmark of, sad landmark, of 200,000 deaths in the UK. Um, in March 2020, when we were entering into this period and the phase, the folks were saying, well, we could probably expect between 20,000 and, and 40,000 deaths. So that's between five and ten times higher already. There are continuing struggles of vaccinations, not so much here, but in many poorer parts of the world and many poorer places. Here, our own NHS and the care sector are still struggling. The backlog for, for operations is huge and so on. And COVID is a big factor too in the cost of living crisis. Many businesses have gone bankrupt. There have been many lost opportunities of all kinds, careers, life events, and much more. Economies that depended on the tourist trade have been decimated. It's not the only factor, but it's one factor in the trouble going on just now in Sri Lanka. The bottom just fell out. Nobody was allowed to travel. And what have we learned? We've been seeking to underline some lessons, particularly for Christians, for the church through this time. And I've got four that I want to gather together and mention again. The advent of the COVID and all that it brought gave no basis at all. Many people, or some people did this, but it gave no basis at all for saying, this is the end of the world. Not necessarily so. But maybe it's a reminder to us that Christ will come again. Perhaps we'd fallen into the way of thinking things had been stable for so long, things had been, and there had been no major upheavals in this country since, since World War II, really. There occasional bit of this and bit of that, but nothing, nothing that really got in the way of things going on and continuing. And maybe we just thought, this is it, this is the way it goes. And life will just go on like this. But that's not what the gospel says. And the church, <clears throat> too readily gave in to the lie that our material well-being, our staying healthy, our life here is, is all that there is. And eternity, if it was tag affirmed at all, was kind of seen as some kind of consolation prize rather than the culmination of all that God was working towards. The pandemic should make us question that. Question whether or not we have been unwittingly swept along by supposing what everyone else was supposing. For the gospel says this is not it. Christ will come again. Now the response of the church to crises that come should not be, and we've said this, to jump to quick conclusions about God has sent this because you did such and such or God is picking on you here. Indeed, our first response should be to say, how can we help? 
In this we join with many others who rose to the occasion in seeking to be more considerate, more generous, better at serving others. It's certainly not a response that was exclusive to Christians. But it is one that we should be excelling in. William Temple's famous saying that the church is the only society that exists for the benefit of, not, of non-members is something that we have the opportunity to show and we should be showing clearly. Christ will come again. We should not think, let's get back to normal, let's just have everything nice and neat as it was because this is how it's going to go on and on and on. No, it won't. History will reach a final cut-off point. In the meantime, our calling is not to make quick judgments, but to learn how better to serve. And then thirdly, the pandemic experience points to another thing that we ought to know and affirm, but too often kick against. In a whole host of ways, we have given in to the notion, very prevalent in our society, that life is about us, what we like, what we want, what we think should be. We too readily have supposed that God's work, God's job, if you like, God's role, is to make things suitable for us. But life is not all about us. Even eternity, not necessarily all about us. And I do wonder and indeed worry sometimes when folks speak of eternity as it's going to be great to see my dad again, my granddad again. Now, I'm not saying any of that's wrong, but that, that's, not, that's not the gospel angle on eternity. The gospel angle on eternity is, is God's kingdom comes and God is honored and God is on the throne. And it should be that way around. It's not all about us. Now, I'm not saying we won't see loved ones. I, I genuinely don't know. But I am saying that that's not what the Bible teaches about the goal of a new creation. For that is about the restoration of God's perfect real, rule in and with through people. And then like others, when the pandemic hit, when lockdown came, we supposed that it might be for a short time. A few months, maybe. And we've been caught out by how long it has remained and how dominant it has been. Many of the early responses and reactions have fizzled out. The sense that we could make a few quick adjustments and then move on has proven to be false. And we live in an instant age, and I want this now society, and one that is dominated by sound bites and headline deep analysis. And it's all just a bit too shallow. And we need to remember that the complacency that has grown up doesn't do justice to life. And so that's why I've been saying the last couple of weeks, the church needs to learn more about how to lament, how to, how to grow, and how to say this is not it. The church should be repenting, not just of particular sin, but of our, our superficiality. We should be saying, God, what's going on and why is it going on? And wrestling with that. Now, Jesus was all about all of these things and more. He looked forward to the fulfillment of God's kingdom and his call to us. His call to us was to become part of that kingdom. 
And even in the prayer that we know as the Lord's Prayer, we are praying for his kingdom to come. And we're also praying for forgiveness. And these two things are absolutely key, not just when COVID comes, but all the time that the people of Jesus, to be a kingdom people and to be a penitent people, to be a people seeking first God's way and God's rule, and a people who are in conscious need of our dependence on God for forgiveness. That's to be a day-in, day-out part of who we are as Jesus' disciples. And when we look at world events, when we look at life, we should do so through Jesus being at the center and through that concern to see the kingdom come and that awareness that it will not come through us and our own efforts alone. We are all sinners in need of forgiveness. Now, I want to underline that by seeing the part played by Jesus in the salvation of the world as described to us in Revelation chapter 5 in the passage that John read to us. After the <clears throat> words to the various churches in Asia in chapters three, 2 and 3, the Chapter 4, the book of Revelation goes on to describe not what's going to happen in the future. The Revelation's not a whole lot of clues about the end time. The Revelation is a description of what's going on behind the scenes, as it were, going on throughout the whole history of humanity, the struggle between the world and, and Christ's way. And in chapter 4, there's the throne and heaven and the, the greatness of creation. There's an eternal and a holy God. And this eternal and holy God creates a universe, an amazingly complex, beautiful creation. And he's praised for it, verse 11 of chapter 4. But then we get into chapter 5, something's gone wrong. This eternal, this holy God has made this great, this beautiful, this wonderful creation. But wait a minute. There's problems. And how are the problems to be dealt with? Well, it seems God has his solution to it. And it's written in the sacred book or a scroll, verse 1. A sealed volume about the world's destiny. A book about time and history, about you and me. And the message of Revelation 5 is that in spite of the huge and demonic upheavals in our world, in spite of the fact that the world has broken loose from God's way, in spite of the ruthless sway of evil and disorder in the world, there is a book in heaven written by the hand of God about the destiny of the world. There is order behind the chaos. There is purpose underneath the mess. There is a plan behind the confusion. God holds the world in his hand and his purpose will not be thwarted. Great. But. There's a problem. Verse 4. I wept and wept because no one was found who is worthy to open the scroll or look inside. There was this wonderful and brilliant creation made by the eternal and holy God, chapter 4. We'd, we'd mucked it up through our disobedience and sin, but, but God was still in control. God was still working his purposes out. He'd written it down in this book, but verse 4, nobody's 
We can't find anyone good enough to, to open it. We can't. We're part of the problem, not the solution. And so just when it seems, verse 4, that evil has triumphed, there emerges one who is worthy. At first, verse 5, he is described as a lion. But then, verse 6, John sees a lamb. And not just a lamb, a lamb who has been slain. Now, it's clearly a reference to Jesus. Jesus, verse 5, who had come from the root of David, the tribe of Judah, who was the king that Israel was waiting for. But, verse 6, he was a lamb. The lion is the symbol of power and royalty. He was the king of the jungle. Well, the lamb symbolizes gentle vulnerability and through its death, sacrifice. The point then is clear. That the victory of the lion is won through the way of the lamb. That's how God overcomes. That's how this eternal and holy God restores and renews creation. Not by dominating force. This is how God does salvation through sacrifice. And nothing could be more subversive to the way of the world than this. Instead of mighty beasts of imperial power, salvation is through the Lamb. We're used to countries picking animals to represent them, aren't we? And, and, and they pick big animals that, you know, show the others what's what. The Russians have got their bear, you know, the Americans have got the eagle, the Chinese have got the dragon, the British have got the lion. Nobody chooses a hamster. <laughs> That's the way of the world. I'll show you. You'll do what I want, and if you don't do what I want, I'll make you. You're the boss here. And in contrast to that, salvation is through a lamb that is slain. You see, the seductive idea that we can control things, that we can sort out the dilemmas and the injustices and the troubles of the universe, surely that ought to be questioned by when we go through a time like we've gone through in the past two years. That ought to make us less sure of our own wisdom, our own ability. And to see that we will not, never sort things out by using force and by dominating others. Now, of course, we have to work this out in a difficult world with hard choices and difficult issues. We might have to resort at times to tactics that we might not like or want to use. I suppose many maybe most, maybe all of us would support or lending support to Ukraine and even by way of providing arms. It's tough. The choices are not easy. And we do not see the whole picture. But the significance, verse 6, of the Lamb having the seven eyes is seven, that number of perfection in the Scriptures. The, the, the lamb does have perfect knowledge, complete sight. 
Jesus sees the full picture. He misses nothing and understands everything. Now, I am not saying that God sent this pandemic in order to teach us lessons. Not saying that. But when something like this comes, it ought to make us lament and groan. It might make us ask why. It might to make us search again and think about who we've been and what we've been doing. And so there are lessons for us. And Revelation chapter 5, with this image of the slain lamb, challenges popular notions on different levels. To society as a whole, the passage says, do not be fooled. Do not be fooled by what you think you can see. That can be shaken up. That can be shaken about. God is on the throne. On the cross, Jesus looked like a slaughtered, helpless, pathetic lamb. But in heaven, he is on the throne. And one day, he will be on the throne in the new heavens and the new earth and in all creation. Things can change. Christ has not yet come back. It is not the final whistle. There was a time yesterday you thought Scotland were going to win the rugby game, didn't you? <clears throat> final whistle didn't come in time. The way things look at any given point are not the way things necessarily end up. And ultimately, we just go with the, the flow of what's happening around us. Or we dig deeper to say, who's in charge? Who's in control? Can we trust the one who's in charge? Can we trust the one who's in control? To a society, the passage says, do not be fooled just by what's on the surface. To the church, the passage says, do not give up. The defeats of history are not the last word. The command in verse 5 not to weep is a command to trust, to trust that the kingdom of God will overcome. Even when the name of Jesus is taken in vain, even when the gospel is being mocked, legislated against, and so on, John says here in this chapter, the Lamb of God is on the throne. And if you say, if the, why is the Lamb of, how can we say that is the Lamb of God on the throne when X is happening or when Y is happening or when this is taking place? In the same way as people would have said, how could you possibly say that God's in control, that the Lamb's on the throne as Jesus is being crucified? That looked hopeless. That looked like the end. That looked like the final whistle. But there was resurrection to come. The gospel is about a God who creates new life, a God who brings resurrection after death. And so while it's right that we do learn to lament and, and groan about the circumstances in which we find ourselves, we do that still, and, and part of the groaning is because we know that there's better to come. We know that there's more around the corner. We know that God intends more and better than this. 
to society, the passage says, don't be fooled. To the church, it says, do not give up. And to each of us as individuals, the passage says, have we been taken in too readily by the enticements of life? It's hard to live for Jesus, isn't it, when there are so many temptations around us? It's hard to live faithfully for Jesus when there are crises around us. And we can be taken in and go with the flow. It's hard not to immediately think that someone or someone else should do something about it. It's tempting to think that the use of legislation or power or asserting Christian rights to do this and do that is what we need. Revelation 5 says, no, it isn't. It says we're not to play the world's games on its own terms. We are to side with the lamb who was slain. And that means we don't just drift along. We have to think carefully about our priorities, where we spend our money, where we spend our time, what we, what we give ourselves to. Or if we don't think about that, then we just go with the flow and going with the flow it's taking us down a materialist, consumerist route that's endangering the planet and causing all kinds of injustice in its wake. Go against the flow. Revelation 5 is another angle on Jesus saying that to follow him means daily to take up our cross. And then in verses 9 to 13, of Revelation 5. We're given an insight and a promise to where that takes us. To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. The four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshipped. Let us pray.